Good morning. That was a hearty good morning. Thank you for that. Glad to see all of you today. I want to thank you, uh, everybody who was able to make it to the block party and help last week. Uh, I think it was a, a very, you know, if you're going to do events, I think it was a really good event for our church and for our community. Um, I think the more we as a people see human beings as spiritual with deep spiritual needs, uh, the better off we're going to be able to serve ourselves, our church, and our community. And I want to thank you. It was, we've had block parties year after year with the exception of last year, and uh, everyone has been great. Uh, it was just so, something about seeing you, all of you, serve on our property uh, in our city, in our neighborhood, uh, that was so uh, overwhelming for me. So I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful for what I believe and know the Lord is doing in our church and is going to continue doing uh, through our in and through our church. I want us to go back to Romans chapter 14. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 14 verses 17 through 19. And we're going to look again at the building and, edif at building and edifying the church. Building and edifying the church. Before we do that, I would ask you to spend a moment in prayer with me. Gracious God, we come before you today needy and desperate for a word from you. Needy and desperate for a morsel from your table. Fill us, Lord. Fill us with your word today. Would your spirit enlighten our minds, open our hearts to your truth. Would you allow us to be changed in the power of the Spirit of God to do your will, to understand and follow your plans and purposes? Lord, would you soften our hearts to each other that we may be kind, loving, share mutual affection, that we would be people of peace. Would you strengthen this church in the knowledge of God, the redemption that we have in Christ, and the power of the Spirit of God? Allow us as a body to grow in peace and joy, that we may share that to this community, to this area, to this country, to this world. Lord, we trust that if we come asking for morsels, that you would give us a feast of yourself today. Would you allow us to see you, to be changed by you, to come away having met you and known you more so that we may do and follow your will. 
pray and ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we found that from Romans chapter 14 that building and edifying the church requires sound judgment. It requires judgment that is built on spiritual intervention. The Holy Spirit intervenes in our lives. He gives us clarity of thought and mind. And He allows us to be people who rightly judge. Sound judgment, we found out, uh, one aspect of that was placing more effort into judging ourselves than into judging others. Um, The Bible doesn't tell us not to judge. We're to be fruit inspectors. We're to judge the fruit. We're to judge the body of Christ. We're to do that for the, for the strict and sole purpose of uplifting and exhorting the body of Christ to follow Him. But we do that most effectively when we look into our own lives first. And we make sure that we're spending most of our time and effort and energy judging our own works. Judging our own heart. When we do that, we will have no choice then but to be wise in how we use the freedoms and the liberties that God has given us. He has opened the door for us. We don't have to live legalistic lives. We don't have to have a set of rules or standards uh, that we must follow in order to be saved. Through Christ, we are saved by the blood of Jesus, by His work alone. We'll talk about it more today. The imputed, the imparted righteousness of God, the, the given to us, And on us and through us, righteousness of God. But what that does, even though it's an amazing thing, it opens up for us an opportunity to judge and measure um, how we use these freedoms. Uh, And oftentimes, when we find out that salvation is about Christ and Christ alone, oftentimes we go to the other extreme as it pertains to our freedoms and we abuse our freedoms. The Christian life is to be found solely in the imputed righteousness of God somewhere between legalism and licensure. Somewhere between legalism and completely abusing our freedoms. So we're to judge rightly. Because what we found out of the third thing is we're not to let our personal pleasure override our personal responsibility to each other. You've probably had it pounded and grounded into your head that this is your personal salvation. That Jesus is your personal salvation, uh, personal Savior and Lord. And while that is true in its essence, it is not true in how we fully develop as a body of Christ. Jesus is not your personal and Savior, Savior and Lord. He is our personal Savior and Lord. He is each of our Savior and Lord. And so not only do we have a responsibility to look at our salvation and how that affects us, we have a responsibility to look at our salvation and how that affects others. We not only have a responsibility to look at our sanctification, that's growing in Christ, and how it affects us, but we have a responsibility to look at our sanctification and how it affects others, how it affects the body of Christ. And so while we are given spiritual freedoms and the ability to do certain things and to to partake of certain things in our lives because we are in Christ and it's about Christ's righteousness, we have to ask ourselves, just because we can, should we? Just because we can, should we? 
you can stick a fork in a light socket. Should you stick a fork in a light socket? You can run out and dance in traffic. Should you run out and dance in traffic? Christians, we need to, we need to put the needs of the church above even our own needs. And I know that that is so contradicting to what you might think as an individual, but also what you might have been taught in the church. It's not really contradicting because for forever you've expected that of your pastor and your pastoral staff. You've expected your pastor and your pastoral staff to put his needs above our other the church's needs above his needs. You expect him to put his family uh, the church needs above his family needs, which by the way I won't do. I won't do. If you have a problem with that, we can talk about that afterwards and I can explain why. But you don't but we don't often expect that of ourselves. We don't need to allow our personal pleasure to override our personal responsibility to Christ and to the church. Today, we saw last week that it's sound judgment that we're looking for. Today, it's spiritual judgment we're looking for. Building and edifying the church requires spiritual judgment. What we have learned most from the last several verses is that we are spiritual beings. That if Christ is not meeting us on a spiritual level, He is not meeting us at all. That we have a longing and an innermost, uh, in our innermost being to connect with the Spirit of God and to be changed spiritually. Often our solution, and wrongly I think, is to clean up our lives and to fill it with more and more works. And when we get to a certain level of works, uh, of formalism, maybe even legalism, what we try to do is we try to tell other people that the way to peace in their lives is to do more and more works and to form your life into this neat box and this neat list. And then what we find is we have disciples of legalism. Now, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to tell you how works are important. Don't worry about that. But works, when we figure out, when we realize that we're spiritual beings, we figure out that works won't get us there. Works are not enough. It's not enough to shape our lives around uh, legalism. Paul's plan with this part of the letter to the church at Rome is, is to put a stop to this legalistic idea. This idea that you can just make things better with your actions and your works and things will be okay. Paul says here, for the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God. Those words are important to note here. What is the kingdom of God? It's used in several different ways in the Bible. Three I think that are most prevalent is the kingdom of God is God's reign over creation. It's the messianic reign of Jesus. But also the kingdom of God is Jesus' reign through the church. And I believe Paul is using that example today for the kingdom of God. It is the realm at which God sovereignly reigns in the church. That's the one we're going to talk about today. That is most prevalently seen in what Christ does through His Spirit in individuals. 
And as they set themselves up as the body of Christ. Jesus said in Luke 17 that the kingdom of God is in your midst. And He has never left. Although He left this earth, He left us with the keys to the kingdom. Luke 12 says, we see that the Father has chosen gladly to give us the kingdom. And in John 18, that this kingdom is not of this world. In John 3, we find out that the kingdom of God is incomprehensible to unbelievers. He says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Also in John 3, unless you are born of the water and the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. It is not of this world, but it is in reality right now. And it is advanced by the preaching and teaching and the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is where Christ reigns supreme in us. Where He roots out worldly desires and faults. And He implants in us spiritual growth and discernment and Christ-likeness. Where the Spirit of God enslaves the hearts, minds, and will of man to the will of God. So I think the kingdom of God can be seen most clearly in us and through us in the building and the edification of God's church. This is done through a spiritual change by the work of Jesus Christ. And I think it takes spiritual judgment to understand what it looks like. So if building and edifying the church is about spiritual judgment, we must consider these things. The first thing I want you to consider today from our passages, from our passage, the kingdom of God does not merely consist or does not consist merely of good works. It does not consist merely of good works for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 says, Paul is an excellent teacher. And as often as excellent teachers do, he is going to give us a negative denial and then a positive assertion. And the negative denial here is that the kingdom of God does not consist of eating and drinking. Now, this is not the first time Paul does this, but it's also the reason why people take small parts of Scripture and they take them out of context. They read the negative denial, but they don't read the positive assertion. This is why people say, judge not lest you not be judged. Or judge not lest you be judged. Or, you know, the Bible says do not drink wine or do not be drunk with wine. You know, people take these words and these phrases, these negative denials out of context because they don't read the positive assertion. So there is this negative denial that Paul gives, and he's giving it for contrast and clarity. 
Now, if we take only what we see from the first part of this verse, we might say, well, Paul is taking away the importance of living holy lives and and living good works. It is really just about what our hearts it really it really is just about our intentions and our motives. But if we thought that we would be misguided and, and, and it's untruthful to say that only what our heart believes and thinks matters. Some people have the best ideas about God. Some people have the best feelings about God. Probably 80% of the people that live in the South would still proclaim to be Christians. With many of those lives, with many of those who have lives that do not match their claim. So there's an important distinction that must be made here. And Paul is going to make it. Paul's not saying that what we do does not matter. He is saying that it matters most that we are transformed by Christ. And then what we do is given credence by the transformation of Christ. That our works are given legitimacy by the transformation of Christ. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. That is the negative denial that we'll develop a little bit more next week. But the positive assertion is that the kingdom of God is built on righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that the kingdom of God is not about what we do, but what is done for us. And then he makes three designations as to what God has done for us. He says, firstly, the kingdom of God is about righteousness. Now, you might be disappointed to know this, but you must be perfect and holy in order to receive salvation. Did you know that? You must be perfect and holy without blemish, without a mistake, in order to receive salvation. Salvation, in order to find right standing before God. Now, it's disappointing because that's impossible, but I've also just said that it wasn't about works. But Paul says we must have this righteousness, and the literal definition of righteousness is perfection and holiness that puts us in right standing with God. How then is it accomplished? If we can't do it, We can't physically accomplish it, but it's also not about works. The Bible puts it plainly. The Bible says to us, He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The complete work of God through Jesus Christ for those who repent and believe is how we attain the righteousness of God. We can't be holy and perfect. So, He is holy and perfect. He does that for us. So then the first step would be to turn from our sin. That is to repent. That is to change our mindset about our lives. And to turn to the work of Christ that He has done. The Bible calls this becoming a new creation. It is only after we transfer our trust to Christ that our works matter. That is is the only time that our works matter. It is important to note that Paul finishes this chapter by saying, 
That which is not done by faith is sin. And all things can only be done by faith by those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? So every work that is done by someone out of redemption in Christ Jesus is at a minimum sin, if not at least uh, worthless. For the Christian, it all starts with faith. This is a deep trust in Christ. A transfer of trust from trusting in your works, trusting in your ability and your hope and your righteousness in what you can do and what you can accumulate for the Lord and what He has done in one single act at the cross of Christ. Then that leads to faithful living. After we transfer our trust to Christ and we're trusting completely in His work, He imparts righteousness upon us. So God the Father looks at us as clean and good and right because of Jesus. And that, at that point, leads to conformity to His will, to faithful living, to conformity to His standard, conformity to holiness, and to a long and consistent life of progressive Christ-likeness. The kingdom of God, Paul says, is not merely about works, but what we do is without, exam- without exception and examination of our heart and whether or not we belong in the kingdom. This is receiving the free gift of the righteousness of Christ. Through Christ alone, by faith alone, by the grace that He has given By the grace He has used to give it to us. The kingdom of God is built on righteousness. It is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of God. The kingdom of God is built on peace. There is a pattern here that I'm going to go ahead and give you. I'm going to go ahead and give it away because I don't want you to miss it. But Paul here is giving to us a Trinitarian work of God. He says the kingdom of God is built on righteousness, which we've already talked about. That is the work of Jesus. He then says it's about peace. That is the work of the Father. And then he says it is about joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the work of the Spirit of God. That might not be important to you, but it's important to me because some people try to deny the three in one. Some people try to deny the work of the Spirit, that they are three separate beings in one God. But here in little Easter eggs, so to speak, and in little little hidden points and also objectively throughout the Bible, God is describing how the work of salvation in man is the work of the triune God of this world, the God of the universe, excuse me. The righteousness of Christ leads to peace. There are two ways I think this is mostly seen. I've given it to you before. I want to give it to you again for those who weren't here in the past. The righteousness of Christ leads to peace with God and peace of God. Our works show that we have received the righteousness of Christ when we are people of peace. (coughs) We've seen this. We We have peace with God. Friends, you need to hear this. (coughs) Excuse me. There has never been a Christian ever that has been emotionally and physically at odds with God over the course of their life 
and redeemed by God. Now, there are times of backtracking. There are times of doubt and there are times of questioning. But friends, if you are in Christ, you are in God and you must be in, you must be also one with God. That means being conformed to his will, being conformed to his plan. The follower of Christ is a follower of the father and therefore the commands of God are not a burden to him. That fleshes itself out mostly in how we view the Bible. Is the Bible real? Is it the Word of God? Is it sufficient for me? Is it worthy to follow? Am I directing my steps and my path upon what it says because it is the Word of God? See, anyone who is not spiritually uh, discerned looks at the Bible as another book. Or maybe they look at the Bible as a good set of rules to follow, as a good standard to follow. They look at Jesus as a prophet or a good man or a wise teacher. But the person who is spiritually discerned is not at odds with the Father, and so he easily, even if it's gradually, hopefully instantaneously, looks at the Word of God and accepts it as that. God's Word passed down to mankind through the Spirit of God. <clears throat> Whether we're at peace with God uh, is most seen in how we view the church. Do we view the church as important? As God's people? As necessary? Do we view ourselves as a part of it or outside of it? Do we find ourselves saying, and I know that this is true sometimes, but it shouldn't be true all the time. Do we find ourselves saying, I get along with non-Christians better than I get along with Christians. I know it's true sometimes because Christians can be jerks, but, but for the most part, but for the most part, we should be getting along with Christians better than non-Christians because we both have the most thing in common that you can ever have. The, the person of the Spirit of God in us. Friends, I want to tell you, if you find yourself checking off things more often and saying, well, I just don't vibe with this part of Christianity I just don't vibe with this part of the Bible. Firstly, just stop using the word vibe. That's, that's, that's a good start. I'm only saying this because I've heard this, okay? Not necessarily from you, but I've heard this. I just don't vibe with this part of God. If you find yourself saying that, it might be that you just don't vibe with God. Thank you. It might be that you just don't have the relationship that you think you have with God. Because after all, it's not about whether you approve what God has said or whether you see yourself as a Christian. It, it is about whether He has approved us and He sees us as in the faith. We will have peace with God. But also, friends, we will have peace with others. 
The older I've gotten, the more important this is to me. I want to tell you, in my 20s, thinking about finding peace was not that important to me. I was thinking about getting to my 30s and 40s and just being ready for it. And, and almost in my 40s, I, I'm looking at my life and I'm thinking, man, I just want peace. I want to enter my 40s and my 50s and my 60s, God willing, in peace. Now, I'm a wild card. So sometimes you're ne- you never know what you're going to get. So I, I stand before you saying, I want peace. And tomorrow I might just blow that up for a minute. And I'm sorry for that, okay? It's not because I'm not trying to pursue peace. Can I tell you, the Christian life, the Christian walk is easier, it's more enjoyable, and it's more consistent with what God calls us to be when we're pursuing peace with others, when we're pursuing peace in our church. We can't be people who are always looking for gotcha moments. Like it should, it should cause us to mourn when we, when we see and know other people in sin, not say, I knew that was going to happen, or I knew that was that way. It should cause us sorrow when we or others fall into sin. Because we know that sin is the absence of peace. And the goal of a Christian is to have the righteousness of God and peace with God and others. And we know that when sin exists, that peace is absent. I'm sure that there will be a time to debate and for war with other believers or with other professing Christians. I know that there are times to debate and for war. But Christians are not marked by their ability to handle a sword. They are marked by their ability to pursue peace and have joy in their lives. They are marked by the righteousness of God, by peace and joy. 2 Thessalonians says that the Lord will give you peace at all times and in every way. Isaiah says, you keep Him in perfect peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12 says, as as much as it depends on you, live in peace. Paul says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. And the strongest indictment is from the author of Hebrews, when Hebrews 12, 14, when he says, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peace. Righteousness. Joy. The keys to the kingdom. Jesus said, in the world you will have turmoil. But He has overcome the world. And I used to look at that and I said, yeah! He's fought the battle. He's won. He's over. And that's true. But we miss the point if that's all we think. Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble and turmoil, but I have overcome that with peace. Sorry. That was a splash zone for a second there. P is a hard word to not splash on. 
I have overcome the world with peace. He has not overcome the world with war and more turmoil, but with peace. You want the opposite of turmoil? You don't get more turmoil, you get peace. And yet in the Christian life, we think it's our responsibility to uphold turmoil. And he says, do not be overcome by the world. I've overcome the world with peace. Now, we shouldn't be apathetic about things. We shouldn't be uninvolved. But everything we pursue, whether it be politics, whether it be personal discussion or debate, whether it be any type of judgment, it should all be, it should all be seen through the lens of the righteousness of Christ, the lens of peace, and ultimately the lens of trying to restore peace and joy in the life of the person we're talking with. He gives us the righteousness of the Father, which gives us peace and joy. That joy is given by the Spirit of God. It is one of the first marks of a life that is changed. Do you remember that? Do you remember that when you became a Christian? Do you remember the joy that you felt? There have been times in your life where it's been so bad, you're like, I wish I could just go back to that. No, that's not the objective of life. The objective is to not go back to that initial joy. The objective is to, you through the Spirit of God, to develop on that joy. To expound on that joy. To increase in that joy. We should be living in such a way, bound to the Spirit of God, bound to the righteousness of God, that we don't have to say so often, I wish I could go back to that time of joy. But that my joy is filled right now in Christ Jesus. Joy comes from knowing where we were and where we are. And that he who began the good work from where we were will complete it until the day of Christ. Where we were, we were a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Where we are, Christ stepped down and He redeemed us. Where we're going is that He is going to continue to redeem us, continue to hold us, continue to make us new until we die or He returns. And either way, we'll be with Him so it won't matter which one comes first. Which should bring us extreme excitement from the Lord, for the Lord, for the kingdom of God, for the word of God, and for his will, for being united with brothers and sisters, for bringing more family into the fold through evangelism, through discipleship, where the Holy Spirit is filling the heart with the knowledge of God, he is filling that same heart with the joy of God. Joy is not happiness. Joy transcends happiness. It looks beyond happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It is temporal. It is situational. This joy is eternal. It is cemented in us. It is being able to find light in the dark situations. Being able to look at the bigger picture like eternity and further. It's being able to look at salvation and how that applies to us. It's being able to look at other people as spiritual and re rejoicing in being able to rejoice in what God the Spirit is doing in other lives even when it seems like 
we're not exactly getting what others are getting. Joy is having our worth and satisfaction in Christ. Happiness is having our worth and satisfaction in temporal things. Paul says, friends, you need to hear this because you need to catch on to this in your life. Paul says that peace and joy are guaranteed for those who are in Christ. Because it depends on the work of work of the spirit after the redemption of Christ Jesus. Now, I know that's a lot. I have two sub points that I wanted to put in there. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Won't spend as much time on that, but these are important. I wanted to, I wanted to designate those. The kingdom of God does not consist of our service. The, excuse me. The kingdom of God does consist of our service to Christ. Look at verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So Paul does this old trickeration on us, right? He says the kingdom of God is not about what you do. Then the kingdom of God is about what Christ has done. And now he says the kingdom of God is about what you do. Or more simply put, what you do can't be right until you have what you've done, what, what's been done for you settled in your mind. Remember, that which is not done by faith is a sin. So anything we do outside of the context of being saved by Christ or a clear conscience is sin. At a minimum, it's worthless, but probably sin. And when we live for Christ within the framework of His righteousness, then it is holy and right living. What does that look like? It looks like prioritizing the things of the kingdom of God. Trying to, in our own lives, increase the reign of Christ in our lives. It looks like removing the priority of self. It is giving Christ lordship steadily and continually, progressively, over every aspect of our lives, which includes our Christian liberties. I've been there before. I've been there at least subconsciously where I've said, I'm good because I'm in Christ. There is no sin in what I'm doing. But as we increase in Christ, as we grow in sanctification, as we give more and more over to the reign of the kingdom of God, what we will find is that we don't have to do it just because we can do it. It is walking in fellowship with those in the kingdom. It is pursuing the will of the kingdom. And it is doing it because we are compelled to by Christ. Because He lives in us and not because of, spiritual, not because of legalistic obligation. There is a, there's a line we must see here. If we obey the will of God without the Spirit of God, without redemption in Christ... It is a fruitless labor. You can give all of your money away. You can volunteer every, every day, every weekend. You can be a part of a church. You can pray. You can read your Bible. But without spiritual change that receives the redeeming work of Christ, 
that is followed by peace with God and others and joy, they are fruitless labors. It's wild because you can do the same things in Christ and glorify His name forever. The difference is our thrust, our motivation, the one who is behind the action. We obey the will of God in and through Christ. It's everything. It's everything. And when our works are in and through Christ, and they are objectively Christian at that point, I want to give you this one last idea. The kingdom of God is built on the peace of God's people. I know we've talked about peace again. I want to give you a little nuance to that. Look at verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue. This is to run after. This is to cling. This is to catch up with what brings peace. Now the stronger brother here understands that the kingdom of God is spiritual. So through Christ and the Spirit of God, He puts away things that causes disunity within the body. When often the weaker brother cannot. The weaker brother in, uh, in the body says, well, they are doing it, so can I. Or I can't do that at all. The stronger brother says, the peace that pleases God and builds up the church is more important than my freedoms. More important than winning this debate or being right. Church, we must cling to, we must pursue, we must catch up with what brings peace in our hearts and peace to the body. Cling to what unites and builds the body at all costs, even if it's at deep and immense personal sacrifice. We can't just expect that out of the leaders of the church. We can't just expect that out of the few who have taken prominent roles in the body of Christ. But we expect that out of ourselves or we don't expect it at all. We give it up out of ourselves or we don't expect it from anyone else. And friends, if you find yourselves at at odds with the church on every or many issues, there are two things you can do. I'm talking about the local body. You can repent and be saved or you can leave. You can repent and change your mind or you can leave. And I mean that. I love you all and I want you to be here. I want us to be a part of this together. But if you find yourselves at so, at so much odds with the church that you can't join the church in service and in mutual affection and mutual consideration, then go somewhere else. Or repent and be saved. Or repent and start doing what you should do. Those are your only options. You would do us and yourself a favor. But if you have the righteousness of Christ, you should look for ways to find peace, to find joy in this body. In this body. 
You should look for ways to present yourself as a proactive peacemaker, a proactive joy giver in this body. You should not wait for the body to come to you. You should come to the body. And if each of us takes personal responsibility for ourselves, I can promise you there will be very few people looking at others and what they're doing and what they're not doing. There will be very few people using improper judgment as it pertains to the body of Christ. Selfish people don't attain the peace of God and the joy of God. People who are apathetic or lack empathy, they do not attain the peace of God and joy of God. People who lack patience and mutual respect for others do not attain the peace of God and the joy of God. Most of these people spend their lives as fault finders and not peacemakers. I don't know about you, I've spent enough time being a fault finder. I want to be known as a peacemaker. I want to be known as someone who brings people together. Friends, listen. Listen. Don't complain about what people do on the internet and then do it in your church gathering. Don't complain when, people, when you say, people are can- it's cancel culture. People are driving people away. We live, in this, we live in the greatest time for peacemakers ever. Because the internet and our past and everything else pushes people away. It drives people away from each other. It separates us. It puts a wedge in us. If you don't believe me, just wait till the next election cycle. It drives a wedge into people where it says they follow this person or they think that. There's no way we could possibly have anything in common. And what you find is when you get face to face with that person, when you start using real words as opposed to quippy little tweets or quippy little Facebook posts, what you find is, especially with believers, there's a lot more in common than there is that separates us. But I promise you, peace will never be found by looking for faults in other people. And I'm t- I, I know that I'm not known as a peacemaker. I told you I'm a wild card. I want to be known as a peacemaker and not a wild card. I want to be known as someone who brings people together and not pushes people apart. Because that is one of the most distinguishing marks of those who are in Christ. And I want to be known as distinguishably in Christ. Not just by what I say. Not just by good sermons. Not just by my position. But by my affection. By my attitude. By my disposition. Pray with me today. Holy God, You are the only one holy. And we cannot, we cannot be holy unless we are in Christ. Unless we receive the righteousness of Christ. That work that He did on the cross of Calvary. Where He died an innocent man. And He was buried. And He, through the power of the Spirit, raised Himself from the dead. We cannot be peacemakers. We we cannot have joy unless we have received 
that goodness, that work of Christ. But through you, we can be holy as you are holy. We can grow in sanctification. We can grow to be more like you. Help us to be people who pursue peace and joy and Christ-likeness above all else. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen.